Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Stages Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Oh, it's autumn. It's sweater weather. And here in the Northeast, it is also time to start preparing for the stillness of winter. Some trees change color and shed leaves and carloads of leaf peepers put on their sweaters and head to the Northeast to bathe in its beauty. But the process of leaf shedding is so much more than just a tourist attraction. When a tree sheds, it conserves energy and strength. It pulls the nutrients from each leaf and then allows that leaf to fall away to the ground. Over time, it's covered in snow and creates fertile topsoil for new life. And just like the trees, it is the perfect time of year for all of us to let the things that no longer serve us fall away. I love that image, pulling wisdom from past experiences and then letting them fall away in order to grow new dreams. But letting go isn't easy. It's a practice like everything else. And sometimes we need a little help navigating that process. And this is where BetterHelp can help. BetterHelp offers customized online therapy, either on video or live phone chat sessions. It is very affordable and you can speak to someone within 48 hours. A good therapist can really help you pull wisdom from the past and let go with kindness and courage. I highly recommend. BetterHelp has a special offer for Sage's podcast listeners. You receive 10% off your first month with BetterHelp. So many of our listeners have taken advantage of this and we thank you because when you support BetterHelp, you support Sage's podcast all while supporting your own well-being. So just for today, put on a new sweater and then I want you to close your eyes, pick one thing that you can learn and grow from, watch it change color and fall away, and then grow a new dream. Log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, slash stages, and love where you are now. Thanks, BetterHelp. And when I started to Google you, I typed in your name in 1776. There's actually a woman, Elizabeth A. Davis, who was born in 1776 in Vermont. And then you, of course, were second on the, you know, the, <laughs> the Google search, but can you believe that there was a living, breathing Elizabeth A. Davis born in 1776. I thought there had to be something kismet about right. that. This sounds like a road trip needs to happen. We need to get yeah. in the car and head up to Vermont Ooh, I, I and visit her, her headstone or Let's something. Do it. Pay homage. I, I, I think that may be um, in the works. Absolutely. I wonder <laughs> if she was a member of Actors Equity and had to use the <laughs> Today, we welcome Elizabeth A. Davis to Stages Podcast. You may know her from the musical Once, which received an incredible 11 Tony nominations. Elizabeth received one of those Tony nods for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for her work in that show. It also won the 2013 Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album, and I believe our guest played the fiddle on that recording, and we'll talk a little bit about her background in violin and classical music. She performed off-Broadway in Wolves, King Lear, Zorba, The Cherry Orchard, to name a few. And she wrote her own show, My Name's Not Indian Joe, which is based on true life events. She is currently starring on Broadway as Thomas Jefferson in the gender-swapped production of 1776. Please welcome Elizabeth A. Davis. 
Elizabeth A. Davis to stage, please. Elizabeth, please come to stage. So let's chat about 1776, of course. How is the gender swapping handled in the show? What do they need to do to make the changes uh, come together in a unique way? There is literally not a single word changed in the, in the text. So founding fathers still exist. It's the he, him pronouns. All of that remains. All of that remains. So the estate has, the only changes the estate has allowed are they've given us the addition of um, a letter that Abigail sent to John. And it's the remember the lady speech in which she says, all husbands would be tyrants if they could. So please remember the ladies that we will not adhere to anything in which we do not have representation. And so it's this incredible letter. And it's so, incredible. so appropriate. It's, it, yeah. So, you know, we, we get lots of applause in that moment. So the estate allowed this, um, this addition. Otherwise, I mean, there is an opening, you know, Diane Paulus has wanted to kind of protect like how we like literally step into that, but it is a, um, there is a dressing ritual that occurs that allows the audience to witness us in, in, in exactly who we are stepping into the, oh. the essence of these actual real historical people. All right. Oh, so you so like a not a pantomime, but um, like a trouser role. You step into the pant role as storytellers and then move forward. That's right. Understood. Oh, oh that will be beautiful. I think dealing any history right now is a bit complicated and you have to be <laughs> delicate and you have to be intentional. Was there anything that Diane gave you all as a company to always keep in mind while you're telling this, this story? Uh, it, it was very delicate and it, it's been a long process because we had the first uh, Zoom 29 hour reading before no one knew what Zoom was. So we were actually in principal rehearsal when the world closed. Mm -hmm. And then we had this Zoom workshop where we as a cast, before even the country began walking through really this reckoning, we were being presented with so many things that I was sitting in, I was sitting in Texas at my parents' house, encountering um, history in a new way that I had never heard and then watching the rest of the world then experience the same. And then we went back into rehearsal. And so we as a company of, I believe at this point, 27 people, we have walked through a lot together and there's been a lot of tears and there's been a lot of anger and there's been a lot of laughter. Um, but specifically to answer your question with regards to how our directors, Diane and Jeffrey L. Page, um, have allowed us to feast on this reckoning creative. Mm. We had access to some extraordinary people here at Harvard, particularly for me, a woman, an African-American woman from Texas is the foremost Thomas Jefferson scholar. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her scholarship on Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Her most recent book is about Juneteenth as a Texan. Mm. Um, but we had her available via Zoom in the rehearsal room. We are not aiming to put on a pedestal anyone and we're not aiming to destroy anyone it, with regards to the to the men represented in the show. Mm -hmm. And Diane has been very clear that, as, as Ben Franklin says in the show, we're not demigods. We were men. And I think that 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 flesh and blood remembrance has been super important to say these were super fallible individuals that had 
cancer and how we're dealing with the death of a child and that they like, for example, Thomas Jefferson. And this is the crux of the play and why Diane wanted to do it. Thomas Jefferson wrote the abolishment of slavery into the original Declaration of Independence. This is history I had no idea about. While maintaining slaves of his own. 607 human beings. That And he, as well as I believe John Hancock and several others, made distinction that they never bought or sold the inherited. That distinction was very important to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, we find that, you know, laughable and horrifying now. But Thomas Jefferson wrote about the abolishment of slavery. And then it was, um, and this is historical. Our dramaturg has been very clear about the steps of how this clause was actually removed. Mm -hmm. Um, South Carolina was unwilling to move forward with independence from England unless abolishment of slavery clauses removed. So you see on stage, you see, I mean, it's a moment where I walk down and I literally cross off the clause that would have freed enslaved people in America in 1776. Incredible. It's, I think it's a really important and powerful play to be told, and especially by women, I think, right now. Always reassessing and questioning what is okay. That used to be okay. That is no longer okay. Okay. That's not my standard. That can't be society's standard, you know? And it's just that constant uh, re-questioning and coming to terms with and learning and growing and moving forward from there. And what we have to do as a society right now to make changes and laws mm. and mm. changes to and additions to the constitution that can lead us forward mm. in a healthier way. Absolutely. And also understanding how how um tenuous those those things are. Like and and this is the other thing. Many people many of the men in that room didn't even agree with slavery. Jefferson's daughter, and this is something uh, Professor Annette Gordon-Reed talks about, Jefferson didn't believe that slavery was right. He didn't actually believe that the entity was correct. And he believed that in the next generation, it would be abolished. So I, Elizabeth, every night on stage have to, like, what am I currently engaged in Hmm. that my great-grandchildren in a hundred years will say, can you believe that she did that? Can you yeah. believe that she thought that was okay? And, and the answer to that may be, well, I didn't, I didn't think it was actually right to, you know, just for a benign example, I didn't think that it was right for children to work in a sweatshop and make my iPhone. I didn't think that was right. Mm. Um, but I actually took part in it because it benefited me. Mm. So it's a constant ongoing challenge with this show that I am making sure I am not just projecting judgments and letting myself constantly off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's not fun. You know, I don't think yeah. obviously it's not fun for any of us. But um, it's important. And when it's art essential. is important and essential, that's when you know you've got something really, really uh, stellar. And that's going to make people think. I also find it so amazing that, especially with the piece of theater that you're doing now, with every passing news cycle, the text changes. You guys are stepping into this brick and mortar building with text that doesn't change day in and day out, but the world is changing and therefore your storytelling and the way it breathes is changing. And the way it's so, interpreted. Correct. Correct. That's the power of theater. That's what's so extraordinary. I know with your career that 
you studied um, classical theater, not necessarily musical theater. Mm -hmm. And that once came into your life, I'm guessing an agent called and said, you're never going to believe they're looking for actors that can (laughs) not only kind of dabble in instrument, but fluently, beautifully play. When I saw you on stage, I knew right away, I said, oh, that artist didn't just pick this up when she saw there was an audition for an upcoming show. This was another limb. This was another voice to who you are. And that's what made your performance remarkably extraordinary to me. And also your very cool boots. I feel like you had these Irish like lace up <laughs> boots. Is that right? I was like, oh, I hope she gets to keep those boots. I wear them forever. <laughs> I wore them for years. I had them taped with blue because they were so like, yes, they were like so oh, authentic. So it was so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So funny. Um, yeah, my, my, my agent called him. I went in for an audition. I, it was interesting. I went in for a different role, but they, you know, they were just moving things around. Martin Lowe, who's an, I, just a fantastic music director. Um, he was our music director on the show. We just had a jam session. He talks about it. He's like, we had an hour long audition where we just jammed. And for me, I don't think of it. It wasn't like, it was just like how my life worked. You know, you just got around, you know, you just grow up, you get around instruments, you just jam. Oh my gosh. See, that makes my stomach go. I become in house. I had the privilege to work with Sting when he was developing The Last Ship. Yes. And they make they make music very different than what I'm used to. I like to see notes on the page. But with this, literally Sting brought in his fellow musicians that all just gathered around and would start to play. And he's like, jump in anytime. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) jump. He's like, you know, your character's story. I think, you know what you want to say here. Just jump in. I did not have any sort of artistic freedom, confidence, voice, nothing came out. And I just looked the fool. I could not find my voice in that moment. And I wish I would have had, um, I wish I would have given myself permission to make big, huge mistakes. But when there is this, you know, Gordon Sumner sting right there, I forget it. Elizabeth, I couldn't make art. And it was so sad that in that moment, I couldn't rise to the occasion. No, but I am, Stephanie, my journey has been flipped because what you do and how I, over the past 10 years have had to learn that. And so the the felt like I, when I was, when I, you know, okay, the Tony, so then I started going in for, for roles that I felt completely unqualified for. I'm like, I'm not, I don't, this is not what I understand. I don't know how to do it. Don't give me a piece of paper and then blah, blah, blah. Yes. I read music, but, but what my point is I had an opposite journey of growth. I think that they're both are art. Well, I think they're art. I think what's perfect is a marriage of both, right? It's a marriage of this discipline of what's on the page, but also the freedom of listening to what's in your guts and what's in your soul and having the fearlessness to just jump out and express it. But if you grew up doing jam sessions with, you know, people in your family that were musical or friends and you just jumped in, then that's what you're accustomed to. You know, mm-hmm. I would, would not be able to do it either because I didn't grow up in that kind of household where we all broke out you know, instruments and started making up music. But I think if that's what you grow up with, there's a comfort level in there, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is perfect because I was reading some of past articles and interviews and I loved this. So you said, 
So I just started singing and playing, which I grew up doing. If you don't use your voice and lean into the uncomfortability and you don't decide that you're willing to embarrass yourself 40 times over, there was definitely a muscle of overcoming embarrassment. All artists do. I think it's supposed to be deal. I think that's a misprint. All artists deal with that. And if you're not used to embarrassing yourself, God bless. It's just the walk of shame every day. And then you realize it's not the walk of shame. It's the walk of courage. It's the walk of sustainability. And so I think that's how the muscles of staying power are really created. And I fell in love with you. How smart are you in that? Are you Where impressed? Did I say that? Let me go back. Let me go back. This is a, it's called navigating Hollywood. The idea of leaning into the uncomfortability, the realizing that it's not a walk of shame. It is a walk of courage. That's yeah. not just in the arts either. No, That's, you're right. No, That's in raising a child, for goodness sake. You're right. You have the courage to allow your child to be something that you might not uh, be able to relate with or that you're worried other people can't relate to, or, I mean, it's in, it's in every part of life. Do the cost benefit analysis of like wild 100%. You have to go hundred percent or this is not going to ever happen in any right. way. It's mm-hmm. so true. And so I do think that's, and this is also, I think translates into anything in life. If you're it, like desperation is the thing that fuels the eventual creativity when you find that place where you're desperate enough to try something new, mm-hmm. then it's like, but to be desperate is like a horrible thing, you know, like, desperate and inspired. If you've got desperation and inspiration and they're together, then you've got magic. Then you've yeah. got fuel and discipline, right? That's the broken hungry feel that they say like anyone, you know, like we all are aiming to go back to that place where we feel we're broken hungry. So yeah. that we can, like, sure. Well, you've made enough mistakes to say, okay, all right, I've avoided this long enough. I need to just jump in and do it. Right. And, and and you make tons of mistakes leading up to that desperation and that point in your life where you go, okay, every road is clearly closed, except this one that I'm terrified to take. So I'm just going to take it. Here I'm I jump go. In. It's all a perspective and who's afraid of what. And that just comes from society and our childhood and just our general makeup, who we are. So you can't Mm -hmm. beat yourself up for being intimidated by Sting. Do you know very many people that wouldn't have been intimidated? Most people would have, would have absolutely like pooped their pants and then like, I guess that's a win. I didn't poop on Sting. So that's a win. Look, glass (laughs) half full. Your parents were educators, both of them. Yeah. So when they saw you as an artist, did they, could they recognize you? Did they know what to do with you? Or was it just loving support and encouraging from behind? I love this. Both of my parents directed the high school play together from the time I was in my mama's tummy. Like I, I, there's a picture of her wearing like the shirt of the show she directed that year and like this big old belly. And they directed a show every year of my life until they directed me as a senior in high school. And I won like the Texas state best actress. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Um, And look, I had a, I graduated with 10 people and I was not the valedictorian. I was a salutatorian, which means I was not even in the top 10%. (laughs) class. I love that so much. And then my daddy was the superintendent. So he had to write a letter as a superintendent to my college to say, this is why she's not in the top 10%. Oh my gosh. 
Anyway, so my point being, we had 40 kids in high school and they all were like from the ranch or from the farm. We were all involved in agriculture or something usually. And so for me, like theater and service were always combined. Like there was this always sense of like theater makes people's lives better. And and I recently learned that in 2017, the year my son was born, that my mother had received a full scholarship in theater and my grandfather had not let her go. Oh, wow. Because he believed that it was, you know, that it was antithetical to their, to our faith. And and it was like, that's, that's the devil's work. Product of the Mm -hmm. times for sure. Right. Um, Which is why, like, I I believe creativity is so divine. I do. She must be so proud of you. She, She has given the gift of theater and music to countless students. She has found a way to creatively live in a really powerful way. So you were in once yeah. getting your, your wonderful Broadway salary and you decide to quit so that yeah. you can go off Broadway and do Brecht. Now that takes a ton of courage. And a lot of people that we've talked to on this show zigged when everybody else zagged, you know, they didn't do the first, we do this and then we do this and then we do this. Mm-hmm. And it always paid off for them in the end because they had this inner compass that just led them in the direction, even when they were in it going, what the hell have I just done? But it took them where they were supposed to go. And when I was reading about you, I was like, she has that compass. She did that. I mean, who, you know, who leaves the who show does that? to go, you know, to go off Broadway and do brick. So to, I want you to talk to me about that, even to leave such a small town in Texas, right. And go in search of this. Mm. That's a, that's a, mm. that's, a big thing. That's an mm-hmm. That's a crazy woman. Right. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was at the right. If I wouldn't do it again, at least in this stage of my life, I would not make that same decision because I'm in a different phase of my life. I'm in a different creative stage of my life. I, I it goes back to, it goes back to sting Stephanie. It goes back to that. Yeah, I think so. Doesn't it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always does. <laughs> August wins. I just <laughs> I knew myself to be a classical actor. I knew that my core creative identity was not yet ready to walk into musical theater rooms where I was perceived as the musical theater lead. I was not yet ready to, I, I, that was not who I was in that moment. So first of all, once was really hard on my body. So, so, the, so that it was a very calculated decision However, I knew, speaking about the compass, I I knew where I had creative power and I wanted to return to that place so that I could then say something different to myself about myself, Mm. to remind myself where I was powerful. I was going into rooms feeling as if I was untalented, feeling as if I didn't know who I was. And I had to put a stop to that and say, this will continue to drain me. I need to go back where I'm powerful. Mm-hmm. And so. That's to- very insightful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, but, but it's Keisha Lewis. We talked about the same yeah. thing that Stephanie, <gasps> you and Keisha Lewis made that same choice. Right. Well, I, I, back I, to find I didn't go back powerless. to powerful. I went back to recenter. I knew that yeah. I was wavering. I wasn't failing. I was booking jobs, but 
I was losing who I was in the room because I wanted to shape and morph to whatever they wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And over and over when I would do that, I would leave the room and felt like I didn't show who my true self was. But even that, even mark. that shows though, that you had enough self-awareness to realize what was going on. When I was young in those rooms, I didn't even have that self-awareness. I was just like going from room to room going like, well, now what should I be? And now who do you need? And I can be the workhorse and I can do whatever you want. I didn't even have enough self-awareness. I I would now certainly as a, because motherhood takes you to different places and illness takes you to different places and you learn about who you are. Now, I don't think I could be taken off my strength path, but then I didn't even have that insight. So you didn't feel an empty, like an empty cry that would just nag at you. I did, did. but I didn't have the self-awareness to put a finger on it and say, I need to go back. I need to go back and find who I was, or I need to go back to a PowerPoint in my life. And that could also be because I I didn't have a PowerPoint in my life. I don't, not, not that my childhood was chaotic. It wasn't, but my teenage years were very chaotic. So I think the thought of going back was even worse for me. So I I love these kind of conversations there, because especially with women to see when did you step into that power? And then, and then how did you get away from it? How'd you get back to it? But again, it's, you know, it's phases, it's, it's phases and stages and raises and glazes. And (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about my name's not Indian Joe. Tell me about that story. I know it was a true story in your life. How did you begin writing it? How did you get it up off Broadway? Let's talk about that a little bit. I, I, um, I think it was a vacation week I took during once and I did a solo version at the Cherry Lane theater. Um, so I, I did a a short solo stint and uh, a producer wanted to take it to good speed, but she said, I think there's a lot more music in this. And I was like, I don't do musical theater. (laughs) And she said, really? I was like, no. And then I discovered what I'd been doing since I was a small child, which was writing music. So that process began to, I just, it was so painful and it was so hard, but again, like, it was like, I'm going to get, I'm not going to make any headway if I don't just fail forward. So then we went to good speed and (laughs) I became the thing that I was terrified of and I did it. And then I did it my way. And then I, and then I embraced it because I sounded like myself and the ability to start having a different sonic soundscape on Broadway has allowed me in the last 10 years to, to find, to find a place in other shows. John Doyle cast me in Allegro at classic stage. And that's a Rogers and Hammerstein piece, obviously. Uh, And he let me sound like me. Yeah. Which was John Doyle the first director to say, hey, well, at least in our recent memory, to say actors are now going to play instruments on stage. I know he did it with company. He did it with um, Sweeney Todd, but they still were supported by orchestras in the pit. Is that right? Or was all the music coming from the actors on stage? So so John, John started, Margaret Thatcher cut funding in the UK for the arts. What was that, the 70s? And yeah, late seventies, early eighties, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Eighties. So we, we, I actually owe my career or my work in the theater to Margaret Thatcher because (laughs) didn't know this conversation was going here. (laughs) So she was like, we're done with arts. We got to balance the budget. Forget all of you artists. 
And John was like, well, and then he said, well, I'm just, I'm just going to like have my actors. I'm going to find actors who play and I'm going to still tell my stories. I believe that John Doyle started out of necessity, out of desperation, that feeling of like, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. That's the process, I guess, of just growing up and growing over and over and over. And so it's not unique. It's not creatively unique. It's not humanly unique. It is just, it's how it works. So I had the very normal human experience of discovering myself yet again in a new way. And like you were saying, when you just step back to say, oh, I, I know who I am now. Then you walk in those rooms, like, I don't care if you don't like me. I mm-hmm. really don't care mm-hmm. because I like me now. Mm-hmm. And I like what I have to add to whatever in the tiniest little sliver of a way I can add to the canon in some tiny way. So writing came from that and writing music came from that. And I raised $237,000 by myself to uh, launch the development off Broadway. And I had my son and I realized I could do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. How old is your son right now? He just turned five. Oh, sweet. It's a good age. Good age. The precious. Delicious. He's deeply intuitive and it's terrifying. His brain Mm -hmm. really scares me, but I'm excited. I'm excited, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely... As you both know, we're going to have to steward this well. I I read that you have another plan development called uh, Childless. Yeah, but it's a four-person play, and it was me struggling with, do I want to have a child? Do I not want to have a child? My best friend has four children. So I really just, the germ of the piece was fighting with myself about what does it mean to have a child or not have a child? I also, there's a character and there's a family member I have who lost a child to suicide. So are you still a mother when your child takes their life? Are you, and then, there, you know, we deal with miscarriage in the play. And I, I wrote that before I even had a miscarriage and I've now had two miscarriages. So I, I have a friend who lost a child at, she was about four. And she said to me once, they have a word for a woman who's lost her husband. They have a word for a child who's lost both parents. They have a word for a husband who's lost his wife. They have no word Mm. for a mother who's lost her baby. There is no word to describe that agony. And you think that's really true. It's, you can't even put a word to it. No, Nothing could encompass what that pain and and loss would be. Yeah. There is no word. Touching on the personal, you wrote about having a miscarriage before you actually did. And I'm sorry for both losses. When you go back as the author, did you leave the text as such, or did you have to change a lot because your experience was different than what you had written before your actual life experience came into play? You know, I haven't, I haven't altered the text since, but I also have written a a concept album that accompanies the play. I I guess that's a really strong example of how I've come to understand my creative life. I wrote a play and I wrote an album of music, but I didn't write a musical. It is not a musical. (laughs) You will not be a musical theater gal. No. Damn it. Now I'm like, now I want it. Now I want it. I'm like, yes, I receive it. Um, 
but but there are singles from the album available called the apple tree um on my spotify whatever oh great um so so people can get some of those singles but i did write a a song four years ago called laura and it was a song to to a child that you realize by the end of the song was was never Mm. was was never to be so i um in recording that song this past year while I was walking through the recovery of the miscarriage, knowing that I had almost written this song for myself to myself without knowing it was it was healing and wounding at the same time. Mm. So we'll, we'll see when we, when we get into rehearsal with the play, we'll see what really alters once all of this trauma and growth has fully matriculated. When do you start um, rehearsals and all of that? We're, we're thinking 23. We're thinking there may be a workshop this fall um, while 1776 is going on. I was going to um, say, yeah, just open a little Broadway show and then, you know, do a <laughs> workshop for your play. And then. And now it's time for the five questions. If you were to be anywhere in the world right this very moment, where would you like to be? And what do you see yourself eating? <laughs> Cinque Terre in Italy. Oh, yes. And I would be having pesto and mozzarella and tomatoes. Nice. nice. She knows where she wants to be, people. Right. <laughs> oh, Cinque Terre. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Most romantic night of maybe my life. Like, unbelievable. Like, yeah. Anyway. With your husband? Or is that a whole different situation? Okay. No, all right. All right. It, it, all right. The very one, the very oh, one. Wow, perfect. It better be with her husband or she can't be talking about it. Oh, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's not right. There are many stages to her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If I were to walk into your closet, can you pull out an article of clothing or some keepsake that you will never get rid of? Mm-hmm. I would have said my once boots. Mm-hmm. I would have said my once boots, but I threw them away. I throw them away in a violent act of like, I've, that's done. Purged. Um, you purge the boots. I purge the boots. So I think I would say to you, to really answer you, I, I have like this beautiful, like robe, like it was from my mother and it belonged to her mother. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's very strange. It's like, perhaps like an intimate item that my mother and my grandmother gave me. Anyway, that's very strange. No, it's um, not. I have to, I have no, to read that. As long as they weren't in Cinque Terre, you are just fine. <laughs> okay. 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 Wow. Okay. All this is, um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're in jail. We call your family. Uh, and what would they have assumed you have done to land yourself in jail? What crime oh, did you commit? Definitely stole something. You stole definitely, something. I definitely broke in violently into someone that I deemed like not judicious that they had been, they had done something unfair and I rendered, I, I deemed myself the one to bring righteous judgment to the scenario. Justice vigilante. Yes. And I decide, I'm like, I'm just going to. Can I send you a list? Robbed. Can I yes. Send you- <laughs> I have a few people I would like. That to is listen. a true Texan right there. She yeah. is voicing the heart of a true Texan. Vigilante. <laughs> uncle Sid, I have to say my great uncle Sid did, did commit an act of, of violence. He did a, don't, he commit don't an act of violence. In trouble. <laughs> he committed an act of violence and crossed from the Oklahoma border into the Texas border to not be arrested. And it may be why parts of the branch of our family are now in Texas. 
I, I, Listen, yai, sister. Yai. My family had a castle in Sicily called Grafeo Castle in Sicily. And the rumor is that a great, great somebody did something bad and came to the U.S. And I'm like, God, I was supposed to be a princess in Sicily. Was, no, this is no, making me a break, no, man. <laughs> the hell? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's worse than Oklahoma to Texas. Sicily, I'm sorry about that. I was supposed to be a princess. <laughs> what the hell? I am not. Oh. Happy about it. Okay. Oh. Uh, now I've lost. Okay. If you could wake up tomorrow morning with any ability or superpower, what would it be? I would. Wow. I'm all about justice. <laughs> I would, I would, I would, I would have the ability to um, kind of like Robin Hood. I would want to, I would want to make sure that people that did not have resources were suddenly equipped with the resources they needed. Like, mm-hmm. so, like some kind of like guardian angel dropping of resources or funds. That's not a real superpower, but yes, it is. Yes, yeah, yes. That's yep. a superpower. That's a good one. Yep. All right. Our final question. If you were a nail polish color, what would that color be? And what's the cheeky little name of that nail polish color? Royal Sicilian purple. Royal Sicilian purple. You know, yeah, we tie in Sicily. We we had to tie in Cinque Terre in Sicily. And and I think of justice as like a purple color. Yes, for Absolutely. sure. And, ro- right. and a royal color. Royal so color. it's going back to us being princesses. You know, I was a princess for Christ's sake. I mean, honestly. <laughs> you are delightful and smart and gorgeous. And I-, I love that there's a justice about you. Thank you both so much. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after this break? Y'all. Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, (laughs) why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages stages go 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 find your healing go find your happy stages podcast is sponsored by better help that's h-e-l-p i feel like i got a new friend because there is depth and quality and humor and um boy my admiration is huge she's not at all what i thought she was going to be, she's very different than the person I sort of pictured her to be. Isn't that funny? From reading a lot of her article or her interviews and transcripts of these different interviews, I knew there was, she was very articulate, very smart. Um, but that sort of levity and humor, mm-hmm. the, um, the idea of just being able to embarrass yourself over and over and over again without, you know, uh, dealing with shame. And I think that's part of my anxiety and my perfectionism uh, that when I go to bed, right, I, I relive my entire day, people I've met, things that I've said, things that I could have done better. Um, 
should have kept my mouth shut. And I know that is all part of living in some sort of past, but I look at it as I just want to go over everything to make sure that I'm a better human the next day. But I do carry with it a heaviness as opposed to sort of relieving myself Mm -hmm. of, okay, those things were done. They weren't done in malice. I wasn't looking to harm anyone. Now just learn the lesson and move forward. So that difference between being embarrassed, moving forward and carrying the weight of the shame. shame. Yeah. 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 Do you, all right. And this is going to be a weird question, but when you feel shame, Mm. do you feel it in a specific part of your body? Cause I do. I know when I'm experiencing shame because of where I feel like almost a burning in my body. I hate that I can't answer that question, but I don't think I've been aware physically. I need to, I need to pay attention to that and see if I feel it in a, in a particular place. Because that's when I sort of know the difference. Like, is this self-imposed shame or did I actually do something I need to, um, make amends for kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But my need to want to apologize for things where people are like, wow, I didn't even give that a second thought. Mm. Like that wasn't even in their space of their day or their head or anything. And for me, it weighs so heavy and I just want to absolve myself. So I don't know whether that again is, is wanting to be loved by everybody or (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I do have to learn how to release it because I think that's a lovely quality to be able to go back to someone and apologize. A lot of people can't even do that. That's true. I just know when I was reading her articles and I saw the word embarrassment and shame, it's almost like they lifted off the page and were highlighted. Mm. And for me, I need to figure out the definitions of each, the weight of each, and how to carry them healthily in my body and in my day. Yeah, they're two very different things, I think. Very, yeah, very. They're very, but, very but I think they're sister words, much like jealousy and envy are very different words. You know, they're not synonymous with each other. They're, they're different. They mean different things and how you interpret them and react to them are different. And what it means for you and the other person are different. Um, but I, I don't mind being embarrassed. I'm okay to trip. I'm okay to make a a fool out of myself, Mm. but then if it becomes part of, uh, my identity or how someone views me through their lens and are able to um, maybe place judgment because of something I've done. The embarrassment is fine, but that means I've done something else that's weightier and has a ripple effect if shame is attached. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But what I'm wondering is like, is, does embarrassment come from somewhere within us? Right. So we've done something and we're, Oh God, I'm embarrassed. And shame comes from outside of us. Shame is is put upon us. Embarrassment mm. is something we instinctually feel when we've done mm. something silly or wrong or mm. stupid. That's what I want. Well, I always, I always think of it. If somebody was in the room here with me right now, let's say I trip, would I still be embarrassed? No. There are times where I'm alone and I'll do something and I literally would be like, I'm still embarrassed. I still can (laughs) feel my body temperature rise. My face get kind of red and blotchy and I'm by myself. And yet still I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Automatic reaction. I just Googled it and it says embarrassment results from violating one's particular persona. Shame results from violating a shared objective ideal. 
That's interesting. I'm, I really am going to have to sit with these two words and figure out what they what they mean to me and how they affect me. Well, Even, a, like you said, physically. There's another layer to it too, which is the embarrassment of like like you were saying, tripping in front of a group of people um, is real low, but embarrassment over your actions is mm-hmm. a different. Thing. Mm-hmm. Like done something to be embarrassed mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. That's that's for me a, a much bigger one. Like if I tripped in front of a bunch of people, I'd be like, well, who doesn't trip? You know. Yeah, right. I would get over that real quick. But if I behaved in a way that I wouldn't want other people to see, then I'd be, that's the embarrassed. Or is that shame? (laughs) That could be shame. That could also be control because you let yourself get out of control, Mm. right? You did something beyond what you frame as being ethical, right? You know, we should have had this conversation with Daniel Pink. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, regret. That's a whole different thing. Everybody get out your thesaurus as we use all of these words. (laughs) Um, But back to Elizabeth, I love that she shared with us. I love that you asked the question of why you left once. I must admit, I didn't know she had left the show to go do an off-Broadway play. Um, And did you see how her posture changed and how for her to say, I would not make that choice now. Yeah, interesting. I love, uh huh. I love that she said that because ten years ago, that seemed like the right choice, the only choice in order to identify herself and place yep. herself in this world of of but art. She wouldn't make that choice now because she feels really solid in where yeah. she's at. So that's right. But in order to get to the solid place, she had to make that choice. So yeah. Would you feel comfortable if you were to be uh, cast in a straight play? I would be more comfortable in a straight play now than I would in a musical. Interesting. Yeah. Because when they removed my thyroid, my voice changed. And I can't rely on the ease that I once had with my voice. I used to be able to go out and sing with such ease that I never had to put, I could put more of my energy into the acting or whatever else was going on and and less into the voice. Now, I would be so preoccupied worrying about my voice being where I want it to be that um, I think it would take away from other things. I think until I got on my feet and really started doing it again, but because I haven't done that in so long, it would take a little while. So I would be more comfortable in a, in just a straight play, no music. I I would love that actually. That is true. When you're interpreting art through singing or dance, there needs to be the ease in order Mm -hmm. to get the joy. And then when Mm -hmm. you have the joy, that's when it really resonates, you know, Mm -hmm. and you are storytelling and sharing. If it is a struggle, then it's just by the numbers. You're Mm -hmm. just trying to get to the end of the song or Mm -hmm. the end of the dance because yeah. And I remember when Elizabeth said, Hey, don't give me a piece of paper, even though I can sight read, don't give me a piece of paper that I have to then sing and interpret. And now her voice is still coming through with music that she's written. So she's staying true to herself in that way where she doesn't feel like she has to interpret somebody else's music. She's creating her own, her own voice and her own narrative through what she's writing. Again, I wish I had that skill. That'd be a that would be one of my superpowers that I would yeah. like to have. Yeah, me too. Express me too. myself by writing music in that way. That's right. <clears throat> I got to tell you yesterday, just a change of subject. My son is working. He's doing construction with a friend of ours who does construction. And 
So he's been off every day. You know, now he's 17. He's got his car. He's like, and he gets up in the morning, he disappears, you know, goes off. He's doing working all day. And yesterday <laughs> I'm up in the hammock and he pulls up in the car and I yell from the hammock. I go, Hey babe, I'm up here. And he jogs up the hill and he's all full of energy and he's happy. And he's like, Hey mom, um, I went, I did this. And then I went to the boxing gym with uncle Aaron. And then I went here and I, I got to just take a quick shower and they're going to meet all my friends at the food trucks. And I'll be back at like nine 30 and we'll watch a show. And I was like, okay. And he ran off and he ran and then he took a shower, jumped his car, drove off. And I said to my husband, I think our work here is finished. Oh my gosh. I'm going to cry. But I was so, it was so, um, it gave me such unexpected joy to see this young man bound into the driveway and bound up the hill with all this energy. And he worked hard all day and he was all sunburnt and he was happy. And I thought, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, happy and popular and healthy and hardworking and full of zest for life. Oh, Mary Lee. That's right. really beautiful and really painful. I know. To I raise know. them I'm in all... the way that you keep pushing them away from you so yep. that they can be. Do you remember the theme to my baby shower, which was roots and wings? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I kind of remind myself every single day that she's got a foundation with us. She will always have a home and a place with us, but she's got to fly. She's got to go fly. Yep. Your son's flying. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. But it's that, it's that duality of like, oh my God, you know, did I do my job too well? <laughs> Come back. <laughs> wait, wait, have no friends and stay home, play video games with Maybe. mama. <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe the goal is failure to launch. <laughs> it's oh, true. my sweet oh, friend. Lord. Oh. It's good though. It's good. So good. Different stage. New stage. New there stage. you go. Yep. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you loved this episode or any of our episodes, please follow, subscribe, and share on all your social media platforms. Go ahead and give us five stars and a review. That helps us a lot. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. Thank you to Allison Arns, our booking agent, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our original music, and Tina Wargo, our social media manager. Stages Podcast is produced and edited by me, Mary Lee Fairbanks, and Stephanie J. Block. And thank you to all of you, our cast members, for listening. We'll see you real soon.